Father, we want to thank you that you are a God, that you are a king for all people. Every knee will bow one day, Jesus, that one day when we go to the new heaven and stand in your presence, there's going to be people that look like us and there's going to be a heck of a lot of diversity, Father. We thank you that you are truth and relevant for everybody on this globe. And as we enter this time of teaching, as we open up your word, Father, we proclaim that we are ready to receive, we are ready to listen. See, as a communicator, my words may encourage, my words may inspire, but my words will never change lives. Your word changes lives, Jesus. Your word heals us from our sin. Your word restores us into who we were created to be. And so as I often pray as we go into this time, let me as the communicator become much less. Let you as our king, the one Christ, become much, much more. As I said, Jesus, speak for your church is ready and listening. In your son's name, we all said, amen. So once again, if you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you again. also want to take a few moments to bring you up to speed. See, what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be continuing this series we've been in for the last several months called Unfilter, Revealing the Character of the Kingdom. Now, this specific series is actually the second mini-series or second season, if you will, of a longer study and journey that we've been doing. So the heart behind Unfiltered as a whole is that when it comes to Jesus, we as a human race have a natural tendency to see Jesus, to interpret who he is, what he came to do, what he said through a set of filters. Now we develop these filters through a lot of different sources. We may put filters to Jesus based on our upbringing, based on how we were raised, based on what we've heard growing up. We might place these filters on Jesus based on media portrayals on him. We might place filters on Jesus based on our own life experiences or our own our own successes or our own hurts, pain, bitterness. We may place filters on Jesus based on cultural or societal norms, but whatever it is that we gain these filters, when we filter Jesus, what ends up happening is that we create a Jesus in our own image, one of our own liking. So this journey of unfiltered is one that we want to remove those filters and see the real Jesus, who he really is, what he really said, what he actually came to do. And our primary tool for doing that is going back to the first century by opening up and doing a deep dive of one of the earliest biographies of the life and teaching of Jesus, the gospel according to Matthew, which is the first book in the second half of our Bibles, the New Testament. Now in this miniseries in particular, what we've been doing is we've been at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 kicks off a few chapters of arguably the most famous teaching of Jesus's ministry called the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, this teaching begins with a series of eight provocative statements that are called the Beatitudes. Now, Beatitude is the Latin word for blessed or blessing. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that we as Christ followers, this is how we live the blessed life. And so with that, if you got your Bibles, open them up. If you got your apps, turn them on. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. Now, as you're turning there, as we like to do every week, let's do some quick context about what's happening. Jesus is in the north of Israel in a region called the Galilee. And as Jesus is teaching, a large, large hundreds, if not thousands, crowd of people have come to hear what he has to say. See, at this point, Jesus, to put it in the language of today, has gone viral. 
And there's a lot of people that have come for a lot of different reasons. There are some people that have come out of sheer curiosity. Who is this teacher? What is this message he's given? There are some people that have come because they've heard that Jesus is performing miracles and they want to see the show. They want to see him do something pretty awesome. And there are some people that have come because they have heard his teaching and they've committed themselves to him. The word the Bible used to describe those people is disciples. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus takes the posture of a teacher. He sits down and he begins to teach his disciples. And what his disciples do is they step out of the crowd to listen and receive to then follow his teaching. And his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom. The fact that the long-awaited kingdom of God, where God himself would return to his people, where he will right all of the wrongs, that that era has begun in the presence of Jesus. And so specifically with the Beatitudes, what Jesus is teaching us is that to be a part of this new kingdom of God requires a new type of person, a transformed person. And through the Beatitudes, he describes what that person looks like. So there, as you've turned there, let's go ahead and start. If you're following along in your note sheet, you got a section titled the sixth Beatitude, the transformed heart. Verse one of chapter five. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. Would you do me a favor? Would you underline or highlight that in your Bibles? His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The reason I want you to highlight that is I love that imagery as a reminder that that's the calling on our lives as Christ followers. See, all of us to follow Jesus have been called to take initiative. All of us have been called to step out of the crowd, not just once, but daily. That is the call in our lives. Now we're going to go and we're going to read the Beatitudes we've covered. If you're new, I would highly encourage you, jump on our YouTube channel, just search the Church of Rocky Peak on YouTube and catch up with any messages you might have missed because they add beautiful context to what it means to be a citizen in this new kingdom. So in verse three, Jesus teaches, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now let's pause right there. Just looking at that list of beatitudes we've covered already, you see that this is not business as usual. This is not describing a slightly better version of us as people, but rather it's describing a completely different type of person, a transformed person to be part of the kingdom of Jesus. And now the topic on the table, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Would you underline or highlight that, those three words, pure in heart? Heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, highlight these next three words, will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, as we've been asking with each of these Beatitudes, there's a series of core questions that comes up as we read this. 
The most obvious of which, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Who is pure in heart and what does a lifestyle of the pure in heart look like? And so therefore, to unpack and understand what we need, we need to cover two realms of understanding, as I'm calling it. The first thing we need to do is we need to unpack how do we interpret this phrase today? What is our filter as people living in 2017? And so let's start with that. Pulling religion out of it, just rhetorically, have you ever heard that phrase used? I can't think of a time in my life where I've ever called somebody pure in heart. I can't think of a time where I've ever thanked my barista for my coffee and went, hey, you're so pure in heart. Thank you so much for that. Bless you. And so the first thing we need to realize is for us today, this phrase is not a common phrase that we use. In fact, I really tried to rack my mind to think, where have I heard this phrase or a variation of this phrase anywhere in my life? And it finally dawned on me, Disney movies. It sounds like a fairy tale description, doesn't it? When the hero, when the prince, when the captain, whoever it is, when the one who is pure of heart comes, then the villain will be defeated. And honestly, again, pulling religion out of it, today, in this day and age, when you look at a phrase like that, it sounds kind of cheesy, right? And so let me again rhetorically ask you, how would you define it? What does it mean to be pure of heart? And I think many of us in church and out would come to the same definition. Being pure in heart means you're a good person, right? So let's go one step further. What does it mean to be good? How do we define that? What are our guidelines or goalposts with that? And again, if you look at our cultural filters, the answer would probably be, well, being a good person means you do good things. And that is the biggest filter we need to remove as a culture. Because what we see there is our cultural value is a change that happens from the outside in. If I want to be good, then I need to do good. If I do good things, that will then transform my inner being and that will make me a good person. And in fact, this cultural filter has also made its way inside the global church and in Christian communities where many of us believe if I'm going to be a good Christian, if I want God to love me or to love me more, if I want to experience more of what God has for me, then I need to do, quote, spiritually good things. Because when I do that, then I become a good Christ follower. Outside changes the inside. And so that is our cultural filter that we need to remove. And so with that, that leads us to the second realm of understanding. How did Jesus's original audience, how did a first century Jewish audience understand his words? Because Jesus, as we'll see, being a brilliant teacher, takes them on an intentional journey. And if you look back on the Beatitude, the two key words for a first century Jewish audience are the words pure, and the words heart. And so let's dig into how they would have understood this teaching. So again, today in 2017, if we think of pure, we would think of being good. A first century audience based on the Old Testament, hearing pure means being clean in the sight of God. 
They understood that purity does not exist on its own, but it serves a purpose to be clean in the sight of God. And with that, at this point in Jewish culture, there were many what they would call purification rituals that they practiced daily that were intended to keep them pure in the sight of God. And so some common examples we we see throughout Scripture. If, let's say, a person or a thing was declared unclean, because maybe it was a banned food by the Old Testament laws, maybe it was a person with a disease such as leprosy, if I touched them, I would then become unclean. So to maintain purity, I needed to stay away. Another common example was in that culture, when you arrived to cities such as Jerusalem, what would happen is, in before you entered the city, there would be a, a network of pools in which you would go and cleanse yourself, not just for hygienic purposes, but to be purified as you entered the holy city. In fact, today, as we come to 2017, there's many Orthodox Jews that still live and follow these purification rituals. Several years ago, when I was in Israel with a group from Rocky Peak, I remember in the old city of Jerusalem, I went into a public restroom and on this, attached to the sinks, they have a two-handed cup. And the purpose of this two-handed cup is you come to wash your hands because your hands are unclean. You wash one hand and that hand is now clean. But if that hand were to touch the unclean hand, then you need to start over. Now think about some of these rituals. Many of these rituals had their origin in the Old Testament. They had their origin in Scripture. They were meant to be a good practice to follow to keep our focus on Jesus. But what had had happened, especially by the time of Jesus, is that the religious establishment had distorted the heart and the reason why we purified ourselves through this ritual. It became solely about the outside and had no concern about the inside. And nothing exemplifies this more than the religious leaders at the time, the Pharisees. They loved to talk a big game about how holy and how spiritual and how clean they were. But on the inside, their hearts were dead. In fact, Jesus himself, and I'm paraphrasing it, later on in Matthew chapter 23, Michael touched on this pretty recently. Jesus is laying into the Pharisees. And do you remember the image he used? He called them whitewashed tombs. That on the outside, you look beautiful and ornate, but on the inside, you're dead and decomposing. And hear me very, very clearly, Jesus has no interest in followers who look good on the outside, but are dead on the inside. And we have an opportunity, Rocky Peak, to change the script because to the outside world, is that not the common stereotype of religious people? that we talk a big game, that we walk around with a spiritual swagger and talk about purity and holiness, but on the inside, we're fake and wretched. This is the exact thing that Jesus has come to teach. And so as we continue that journey, he talks about purity, but then he drops the bomb. Purity in heart, the second key word. See, to us today, When we think of our heart, following your heart, listening to your heart, what we really mean is we're only talking about emotions, aren't we? 
When we think of heart, that's all it means to us. It's emotional. That's where emotions come from. What we need to understand is that the Old Testament defined heart as something radically different. And the original audience understood heart as something radically different. That They didn't see it as solely emotions, but what they understood the heart to be was the sum totality of the inner being of a person. The heart was the total of your thoughts, your emotions, your passions, your actions. The heart was considered your control center, who you are, why you think and act the way you do comes out of your heart. Another way to put it is it was understood based on the Old Testament that out of your heart came your very identity. You are who you are because of what flows out of your heart. What is in your heart overflows into every other aspect of your life. And so now as we put together these statements, we understand in a deeper way this call that Jesus is teaching in that to purify is to prepare it for worship. So in other words, through this beatitude, what Jesus is saying is blessed are those whose identities have been transformed and now are ready to worship God. That is what it means to be pure in heart. It's not about the outside changing the inside, but it is now the inside that overflows into the out. So now as followers of Jesus, we don't do good and spiritual things because we hope that will make God love us or accept us or somehow that'll erase sins that we do. We act in righteous ways because of the change he has already done on the inside. I choose righteousness. I choose to leave behind sin because of what he's already done and I am secure in that. And again, if you look back on the beatitude, what is the result of a purified heart? You will see God. Not just in the future when we are in the physical presence of God, but in the presence. When we give our lives to Jesus, where does he take up residence? In you. He purifies your heart. He prepares you as the temple. He comes into your life. And now in every aspect of your life, much more than just when you're here for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, in the good, in the bad, in the small, in the big, in the exciting and the mundane, you are in the presence of God because of the new heart that he has now given you. And what I love about purity in heart is that it does not demand perfection out of us. As long as we are on this side of heaven, we are still going to stumble. We are not going to know everything there is to know. We are going to have hardships in our life, but that does not take away the work that the Lord does in our lives. When he transforms our heart, he transforms it for all time. Now, what's beautiful about this teaching is that it very much echoes a teaching in the Old Testament, a specific psalm. And I want to look at that psalm quickly. I put it there on your note sheets. Psalm 24, 
If you're newer to Scripture, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, we have many, many uh, letters that we call psalms. And for for many of us, what we don't realize is that those psalms were the ancient songbook for the nation of Israel. That just as we started service today by singing praises to the Lord, these are the songs that they sang. But there's another aspect about the psalms that I love, is that they are a very honest look as to what it means to follow God. They are an honest representation of the ups and downs of following Christ. And to use the word of this series, the Psalms are unfiltered. You have Psalms that say, God, you are the best thing in my life. I praise you because you are incredible. You have Psalms sometimes by the same writers going, God, do you hate me? Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? And as I end this quick sidebar, what I love about that is the Lord does not fear radical honesty. The Christian life comes with ups and downs, and we are given the Psalms as a reminder of that. And so Psalm 24 is specifically a Psalm of David, who would go on to become King David, who earned fame and popularity by slaying Goliath with the power of God. And so as we look at the beginning, uh, I just put five verses there in your note sheet. Look at how David starts Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord and everything's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So let's stop right there. David is beginning the psalm with an acknowledgement that God is king. And he is king over all of creation because he is creator. He created this world. He created our universe. He created every last person. He is king over all. And as Christ followers, that should bring a great sense of joy because there is nowhere we could ever go where we are away from the presence of God. And then next, David is going to ask a key question, which is really the question we've been asking in this journey through the Beatitudes. Look at verse three. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Another way of saying this, who may be a citizen in God's kingdom? Who can be a part of his kingdom? And then David is going to answer it and we're going to see in very similar terms that Jesus used. Verse four, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Would you underline or highlight those four descriptions? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Now we have four descriptions there, but they're all talking about the same thing, the condition of our hearts. So let's look at the very first one, clean hands. Do you notice that in the wording, clean hands does not stand on its own. It's clean hands and a pure heart. Again, it's talking about the inside out change. I have clean hands because God has purified my heart. And then when we look at those third and four characteristics, the idols and the false God, again, it's talking about that before God, before Jesus, we gave our heart away to other kingdoms. We gave our heart away to other things, looking for identity, looking for fulfillment, looking for definition. But when we discovered that God's kingdom is real and it is for us, we declared no more that there is only one king that gets my heart and no longer will other idols or false gods get it. So again, it's describing what Jesus is teaching us through this beatitude of what it means to be pure in heart. And then the last verse I put there for you, verse five, is again, what is the consequence of 
those that are pure in heart. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Now, as you look at the descriptions of these four things, one key word we can use is the word focused. These are people who are committed and focused on God. Their sights are fixed firmly, and so they will follow after his leading and teaching, and that will then overflow into every area of their lives. And one big aspect of that overflow is blessing. They will be blessed. Now, what we need to do to truly understand the magnitude of what that means is we need to remove a big filter in how we understand what it means to be blessed. See, for so many of us, we have used that term before, and we have often used it in one of two ways, to describe when we receive something or to describe when something works out or goes our way. We would say those are blessings. Now, hear me very clearly. That is an aspect of being blessed. There's nothing wrong with using that phrase in those situations. But if that is the only definition we have of blessing, we are missing something much much bigger. See, biblically, when it talks about being blessed or living the blessed life, what it's saying is that we are living in restored relationship with Jesus, our King. And what's beautiful about that is that it's regardless of our circumstances. There are going to be times when the material blessing or the situation working out doesn't Yet we as Christ followers are still blessed because of the work of Jesus, because we now live in restored relationship with him. And this is what's key about this psalm and Jesus' teaching in this beatitude. We cannot be a part of the kingdom of God unless our hearts have been purified. Because when our hearts are purified, that is when we experience blessings. This is our biggest need In fact, I put a quote there on your note sheet by one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard. Accordingly, the greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of collective humanity is renovation of our heart. That spiritual place from within us, from which outlook, choices, and actions come, have been formed by a world away from God. Now it must be transformed. Blessed are the pure in hearts, for they will see God. Now, that's the passages I wanted to cover today. What I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to unpack that a little bit further. I want to look at two core truths of what it means to be pure in heart and look at the practical implication in our lives for that. So there in your note sheet, if you're following along, you got a section titled, The Six Beatitude, Two Truths. And your first fill-in is this. A pure heart is a transformed identity. A pure heart is a transformed identity. Now, obviously, as you've been following along, this comes from the biblical definition of what heart means, our very identity 
And so a purified heart means that we are given a brand new identity. Now, to understand our need for a new identity, to understand why we needed our hearts to be purified, what we need to do is we need to remove some further filters, specifically in how we see, define, and approach the area of sin. What is sin and how it's our response to it? Because I think for so many of us, even for us in the church, there is a tendency to minimize what sin is and the impact it's had on our life. See, for many of us, we would sit there and go, well, sin is doing bad things. Sin is doing wrong. Sin is making unwise choices. And yes, that is the result of sin, but that is not what sin is. When that's all we look to sin to be, then what happens is we miss the magnitude and the severity of sin. And I think there's a, there's a teaching of Jesus that highlights very beautifully and very bluntly exactly what sin is. Now, this isn't in your note sheet, but would you write down the reference John 10.10? If you've heard me speak before, that's a verse that I come back to often because it's been so powerful in my life. And I think it's powerful for us in the life of our church as well. In John 10.10, Jesus is describing the devil, the enemy, and he says that the enemy has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Would you write down those three descriptions? The enemy has come to steal, the enemy has come to kill, and the enemy has come to destroy. Now again, while Jesus is talking about the enemy, is that not a proper definition for sin itself? Because that's what sin does. See, when you and I chose to allow sin into our lives, what happened is it now created treason and rebellion and sin separated us from the holy presence of God. We could no longer be in God's presence and God is the source of our life. When we are separated from that source, the only place that leads is death in this world and death in the next, eternal damnation. And that sin's goal for us is to separate us from God and to continue to attack us, to continue to steal from us, to continue to kill, to continue to destroy our lives. And there's many ways in which sin does it. But one of the biggest ways in all of our lives is that sin looks to destroy us by creating a massive amount of confusion over the answer to this question. Who am I? Who am I? Have you noticed that In many cases, that sounds like that would be an easy question to answer. But think about it in your own life. How much time, resources, energy, emotions, passion, pain, suffering have you committed to try to answer that question, to seek your identity? And what happens in this confusion of sin is that it starts confusing us so that we don't look above for our definition, but we begin to look outside at what's right in front of us. And so we look to different aspects of the world to answer that question for us. We say, I don't know who I am. Will you please define me? Will you please tell me who we are? And we look at different categories in our life. We wonder, am I defined by my status? Am I defined by how successful I am in business or am I defined by how successful I am with a family or lack thereof? We wonder, am I defined by relationships? Will my friendships, my group of friends, will they be my definition? Will they give me what I need? Will it be romantic relationships? Will it be the fact that I'm defined that I lack either of those relationships? We wonder, is it going to be our pain and our hurt, the hurt that's done to 
us, the damage we've done to others. Am I damned in that? Is that my identity? We wonder if it's our sex or sexuality or orientation. Is that all I am? Is that what defines me? Is that what gives me purpose? And we go on and on and on looking and asking, what defines me? Who am I? What gives me purpose? And for many of us, we put in so much effort and it's stressful and it's frustrating. And there are times, admittedly, that we feel like we got to a temporary answer. We feel like there's a season or a time in our life where we reach, hey, I know who I am now. I have a definition and we live in that. But I'm sure you've experienced just as I have that eventually time goes on and completely changes that. Let me give you the example of being a parent. If you were a parent that put your entire 100% of your identity into the fact that you were a parent, that was all you were. What happens as time goes on, eventually the kids grow up and they leave. And then where are you? Wondering, who am I? Who am I now supposed to be? And so as we see, the enemy's tactic is to keep us distracted. The enemy's tactic is to keep us confused because he knows that if we open up scripture and see the truth about who we are, that that will be the catalyst for God's change in our lives. Now, we need to acknowledge an important truth about this. When we open up scripture and see the truth about who we are, the first thing we need to see is the Bible is very clear that without Jesus, my identity is sin. Without Jesus, my identity is corruption, is evil, because that is what sin has done to my heart. And the enemy doesn't want us to see that because when we see that, it is going to be a catalyst for us to change that because we don't want that to be our definition. But in speaking of the heart, in Matthew 15, Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, comes murder, comes adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. And again, when we talked about how do we interpret fear of heart in 2017, well, it means being a good person, do good things. The reality of my situation, the reality of my identity is there is no way I can be a good person as long as my heart is corrupted. Now, the mistake that happens sometimes in Christian and church circles is this is where we end the narrative. Imagine if this is where I stopped, prayed, and said, we'll see you next week. That would be a pretty long and depressing walk back to your car, wouldn't it? And in that is the beauty of this teaching of Jesus. See, Jesus is talking to a sinful, corrupted, heart, like broken-hearted people saying, blessed are the pure in heart. Our identity being defined by sin does not have to be the end of our story. As Jesus teaches in the Beatitude, that is the beginning of a brand new story as part of his kingdom. See, as Christ followers, we need to acknowledge the gravity of sin and the totality of how it corrupted and how it changed us. But when we see how big of a deal sin is, we are in awe of the magnitude of the power, grace, and purity that comes by following the Lord Jesus. And so with that, let's finish John 10, 10. For the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come so that we can have life and have it to the full. 
See, we talk about how the kingdom of God has come to right what was put wrong, right? One of the biggest wrongs that Jesus has come to, to come to right is the fact that we lost our identity due to sin. So therefore, Jesus broke into our world, broke into our time and space. Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't do. He taught and showed us and pointed the way to the kingdom. He died and he rose again for our sins so that he could purify our heart. And because of his power, he takes our hearts and he fills it with his love. And so what ends up happening is that we go from being literal darkness and corruption to being light because of his life. What happens is that he enters our life and we go from being dead and rotting and decomposing to being alive. What happens is we go from being orphaned and abandoned by sin to now being, as the New Testament calls it, children of God himself. And what happens when the Lord comes and he purifies our identity, he purifies our heart, is that now he prepares us in our total being to worship God in a way we never could before because now we are prepared to be in the presence of God. And you know what happens when we start this journey, when we give our hearts to Jesus, when we embrace his purity and cleaning, is he reveals to us, you are now my child. And then as we continue to enter his presence, as we continue to walk with Jesus, he shows us more and more beautiful truth about our identity, about who we are because of the purity that comes in Jesus. Even though we're imperfect, again, even though, even though we may not know everything, even though we suffer and stumble and fall flat on our faces sometimes, because of Jesus, I can stand as pure in heart. And what he continues to reveal to me is that because of him, my identity is now freedom, not bondage that came in sin. Because of him, my identity is now the power that he brings, not fear and anxiety that came with sin. Because of him, my identity is one marked by an eternal joy, not a fleeting happiness that came through sin. Because of him, I now have a new passion for what is good, for what is righteous, for what is holy. I no longer have an apathy for the sin and darkness around me. Because of him, I now, as imperfect as I am, get to be a reflection of the King Jesus in my life. By fulfilling my greatest need, which is a brand new heart, Jesus has completely changed my identity. And that's what it means that I'm pure in heart. Again, there in your note sheet, I like how Dallas Willard puts it. The heart is precisely what God observes and addresses in human beings. He cares little or nothing for outward show. Would you underline that? Because I need that daily reminder. He cares little or nothing for outward show. He responds to the heart because it is, above all, who we are, who we choose and have chosen to be. What God wants of us can only come from there. And so as we talk about what it means to be pure in heart, see, this teaching of Jesus, the hope is that we would become a people that learn to be confident in our true identities that we would not be a people of timidity, but we would stand on an authority that because of Jesus, I can say that I'm pure in heart. Even though I'm imperfect at times, even though I stumble, because of Jesus, I am pure in heart. And so practically speaking, how do we assess this? 
Because to grow in that confidence, we need to be a people that can assess that. Am I embracing the purity that Jesus has given me? Am I basing my life around this? What's our scoreboard, so to speak? And so what I want to do is I want to give us two practical steps to begin to assess this. The first step is this. If you are wondering, am I pure in heart? My initial question is, has there been a time in your life in which you initially gave your life to Jesus in the first place? Has there been a time in your life in which you stepped out of the crowd, in which you realize that Jesus and his kingdom are real, that he is for you and he is calling you to a new life, he's calling you back home? Is there a time in your life when you realize that you committed treason against that king? And so in an act of beautiful repentance, you came before him and said, I want to confess my rebellion. I want to follow your kingship. Has there been a time in your life in which you've experienced his forgiveness, his grace, his hope, his purity washing you from the inside out? And in that moment, you you became a child of God. You became pure in heart because of him. For some of you, maybe yes, many years ago, maybe shortly. For some of you in here, maybe you haven't crossed that line yet. But for all of us, if we want to be part of this kingdom, that is where it begins. And for those of you that haven't crossed over that line yet, I want to encourage you, there's no time like right now. Now that's the first step. Now the second step for us, regardless of how long we've been walking with Jesus, is actually your second fill in there. The second step we can assess if we are living in the purity that he's given us is that a pure heart is a transformed focus. A pure heart is a transformed focus. Now again, we want to define terms here so we know what we're dealing with. Um, My entire life, or I should say my entire academic career, all the schooling I've done in my life, one phrase I heard my teacher say over and over and over again was, Dre, you're not paying attention, please focus. (laughs) And rightfully so, because I was and still am a notorious daydreamer. But for many of us, when we think of focus, that's kind of what we think about, right? Paying attention. And there's an aspect of what I'm talking about that's included in that, but what I want to do is I want to take it to a much deeper place. See, what I mean by a transformed focus has to do with the word priority. Now, let me be very clear about this. Do you notice that I'm not pluralizing that word? Do you notice that I'm not saying priorities? See, in our life, there are many things that are important. In our life, there are many things that we would say, this is a priority, and that's all well and good. But when I talk about focus, as the psalm talked about focus, specifically what I'm talking about is in your life, what is your ultimate focus? Meaning to you, what is the absolute most important thing that gets you out of the bed? What is it that drives you? What is it that flow that, that, that makes your ultimate focus from which every other aspect of your life flows out of? What is your ultimate focus? Now let's talk about again the danger of sin in this. See, what sin has done is sin again has confused us and has taught us to believe a lie that in our lives we can declare multiple things as ultimate focuses. But as created beings, when it comes to spiritually having a focus, we were not created to multitask. 
We were created to have a singular focus on our king and for everything else to flow out of that. But what ends up happening is that we start declaring multiple things equally as important, if not more so than God. We use lip service and say, yes, God is important in my life, but you know what? My career or my kid's sports or this substance or this definition or this relationship, they are on equal playing field, if not more. And what happens when we have more than one ultimate focus Focus is our life becomes, becomes one of those people that is spinning plates. And if you've ever watched anybody on TV or YouTube spinning plates, it all always goes the same way. It starts out well, and there's a period where it feels like they're in control. And then what happens is that you start getting some speed wobbles, don't you? So then that person has to go and focus and fix it. But while they're focused here, you start getting more speed wobbles over here and they're running and now the pace becomes more frantic. Now they're becoming more nervous. Is this going to happen? And eventually what happens is a plate starts to fall. And when one falls, it starts a chain reaction where all of them falls. And that is a very apt picture into what sin wants to do by trying to convince us that we can have more than one ultimate focus in our lives. As we begin to put all these things on equal playing field, but what happens is our focus becomes divided, our hearts become divided. And as many of you have experienced as I have, eventually a plate falls and everything comes crashing down. Because when it comes to spinning the plates of our lives, there's only, one, there's only two ways that's going to end. Either everything comes crashing down or the person spinning the plates dies. And this is why this teaching to be pure in heart is so valuable to us. That the Lord is showing us what we were created to be. That we were created to have one ultimate focus, which is King Jesus. And from that, everything else will flow. The rest of my life, my relationships, my actions, my things, my job, my school, whatever it is, all of that flows out of the fact that I follow King Jesus. I like how it's put there in your note sheet from Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast, meaning firmly fixed in place, not changing, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Would you put a box around the word steadfast? And then the quote below it, In this beatitude, Jesus continues an important theme in which a pure heart describes a person whose single-minded loyalty, would you put a box around that phrase? Whose single-minded loyalty to God affects every area of our lives. Again, we were created to be changed on the inside and to have that flow and affect everything on the outside. And as I was preparing this, I got to thinking, like, when did this click in my life? Because as I've mentioned before, I'm a recovering narcissist. And there have been many times in my spiritual life where I almost prided myself on my multitasking ability. That I could carry all of these things with equal weight until they finally fell and blew up in my face multiple times. And I remember several years ago when I was a young, freshly married guy, I was sitting in this congregation listening to a pastor talking about a similar theme. And he was giving the analogy of raising his kids. And he said that he had to ask himself as a parent, what is his end game? What is his ultimate goal? Do I want my kids to be happy? But is that where it ends? Or do I want my kids to experience God's glory? And that has stuck with me ever since. Because to continue his analogy, as I think of my life as I've got three wonderful and energetic kids, 
I want them to be happy. I want them to succeed. I want them to do well in school. I want them to, I want them to have good friends and make good choices. But if that's my end game, if that's the only bar I set for them, then I am selling them short. And I remember thinking, man, I'm not a parent. I'm not in that realm yet, but maybe I need to take a look at my life. Maybe I need to start examining, does God have my complete and undivided attention in other areas? Or am I selling myself short? And so this is where assessment comes in. See, the mark of a pure heart is that we are regularly asking the question, God, do you have my complete focus? Is my heart divided or do you have it in totality? And so what I have found is that if we're looking to assess how we're doing in these areas, there's often three core areas of our life and they build on one another that overflow into everything else. And so what I want to do is I want to give you those areas there. So feel free to jot them down as we go along. So the first area is the word presence. If I want to assess, am I focused on God, then the very first place I need to, I need to ask is, am I spending regular time in the presence of God? And there's two ways that this lives out. One, it's collectively. Am I making it a priority to gather with the other believers, to gather with the saints regularly on the weekend? Am I making it a priority to be in something like a life group where we're spurring and encouraging each other to grow and live? Am I gathering with other believers in like a Soma young adult ministry or in Celebrate Recovery where we can come together, sit under teaching and learn to walk together? Now, for a lot of us, that's the easy one. But the more important question we need to ask ourselves is, how are we doing individually? Is it a priority for me to spend time with the Lord? And spending time in the presence of God will look different as we're different people. The way we pray will look different. Some of us are going to sit still and pray or have a cup of coffee in the morning. Some of us, like me, we like to move around. I walk around my house or walk around my neighborhood as we pray. Some of us, we write down our prayers. Some of us, the way we read the Bible is going to look different. Some of us, maybe we listen to it. Some of us, maybe we read a chapter at a time or a verse at a time. Some of us, maybe we have like a devotional or a guide that's walking us through it. For some of us, it's going to be music where we're playing worship music in our house or we're playing a worship music or podcast of something as we're driving to work or driving around. For some of us, it's going to be journaling or drawing or art. See, whatever it may be, see, the details aren't what's important to me. The question is, are we engaging and entering the presence of God? Because that's the first place to check. If I am not regularly doing that, then the reality I need to admit is that God is not a priority. Because what happens when I enter the presence of God is I realize that what keeps so many of us from entering the presence of God is we think it's like Christian school. It's spiritual homework. Do this and then God will love you. But the reality is when I enter the presence of God, I am in the presence of my King. He is purifying my heart. And I, through that, I find out more and more who I am. He is giving me a confidence in who I am, who He is. He is building a radical honesty. He is teaching me how to focus. And so as we assess where our heart is divided, the first place to be is in presence. Am I regularly seeking the presence of God? And the second place to assess is the word sin. As I'm in the presence of God, am I learning to choose right? And am I repenting when I don't? See, the presence of God is so key because By being in his presence, we are committed to becoming more like him. 
We are committed to no longer letting sin or darkness be a barrier to our relationship with him. And so that's where confessing of sins regularly becomes a big deal. See, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus taught us to pray, one of the models he gave us in prayer is to regularly say, forgive me of my sins as I forgive others who have sinned against me. We quoted that last week. And see, what happens is there are times when we sin, or there are times when we have one-off sins, but the thing I want to focus on is what we call habitual sins. See, habitual sins are those sins that we choose regularly, daily, hourly, monthly. They can be in a variety of different areas. But what happens in habitual sins is we are allowing that to divide our hearts. Because the more we commit to the habit of sin, the more we become okay with it. The more we begin to justify it. The more we almost begin to try to spiritualize it and say, no, it's good that I have that. And we begin to say, we begin to say it's okay that God doesn't have my whole heart because he's got some really important things. So God has 80% of my heart and it's okay that I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend or we're living together because he doesn't really care or we don't talk about it. He doesn't bring it up. Hey, God has a majority of my heart, so it's okay that I have this anger and I don't want to be merciful. We talked about this last week. We talked about blessed are the merciful, right? And for many of us, that's a hard one because we sit there and go, well, it's okay. God has my finances. God has my sexuality, but I'm not going to give him my anger because this world is filled with stupid people and my job is to tell them they are stupid. And we begin to rationalize that. We begin to sit there and go, so therefore, when I feel slighted, I will send the most violent and horrific email or social media post. I will let people know, whether they're just the tell to check her out at Target or people around me, I will let you know that I am angered. And we spiritualize, it is righteous. It is what God wants. The reality, it's sin. It's a divided heart. And so what we need to do to maintain purity in our heart is we regularly need to check where are those sins that I'm holding on to? Where are those sins that I'm enjoying, that I'm finding fulfillment because they are keeping me from experiencing and seeing God the way I was meant to be? And that's the second area. And the third area where we need to assess is the word purpose. See, as a child of God, we have been called to be on mission. That's our purpose. And what it means to be on mission is that we have been given this beautiful mission to tell people the truth about the coming of Jesus, to tell people the truth about his kingdom, to let them know that just as Jesus has changed my life, he can change yours as well. And here's what's beautiful about purpose and being on mission is that Jesus did not put on mission the best of the best. Jesus did not call simply the pastors and the scholars, but he called all believers to be on mission. See, if you've been a believer for 50 years, or if you've been a believer for the last 10 minutes, you are now on mission. See, and sometimes we get the wrong idea that on mission is going to Uganda or leading these giant crusades, and those are beautiful parts of it. But the reality is we've talked about that God is a God and his kingdom is for all people. And so what he does is he changes and purifies all people, and then he sends them everywhere where all people are there. So let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. Are you aware of the fact that if you're part of the PTA at your kid's school, you're on mission? And there's a reason why you're there. 
Hey, let's say you're a truck driver and you drive across the country and you meet other people in your line of work. You're on mission when you're there. Let's say you work in the food service industry. You're on mission when you're there. And it doesn't have to be just a job. It's where we go. Think of something normal. When you go into Target, you're on mission when you go into Target. When you go home or interact with your neighbors, your family, you're on mission when you do that. Do you see that my mission is not weighted more just because I'm on a stage talking to you right now? We are all on the same mission and we have the same calling. And so the amazing thing is what we need to realize is that you've been called to be on mission. And again, we might come up with all of these objections, but I'm not good enough. I don't know anything. I stumble, I fall. That's exactly why you've been called. To show people that you don't have to have it all together before God can come in and purify your life. See, what I've noticed in my life is that the biggest difference maker in our world isn't necessarily words and invitations, although that's beautiful, but it's giving people access to an actual living, breathing Christian. That begins to reflect who God is. And so three areas for us to reflect and assess in our lives when it comes to our focus, presence, sin, and purpose. And so with that, there on the back of your notes, you just have a final question for you. How focused are you? And you might need to reflect on this as the days go on. You might need to sit before the Lord and ask him, how focused are you? Are you at a place where you sit there and go, you know what, I'm not focused at all. I need the Lord to completely purify my life. Are you at a place where you realize, you know what, there's some areas where I'm very focused and there's some areas where I'm not. Are you in a place where you're like, you know what, like, yeah, like the Lord has shown me some things and I've confessed and we're running hard. But you know what's beautiful, regardless of where you're at, the reason why the Lord is giving us this teaching is so that we can see his face in a much clearer way. And so with that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And we're going to sing a song that we've sung often here at Rocky Peak, but it's one of my favorites. And I want to encourage you not just to make this your prayer, but to make the song the declaration of your souls today. That as people who have been purified by our King, this is how we now live. This is also going to be time where we receive our gifts, our offerings, our tithe. And we just thank you for helping us fund the work of the Lord and the movement that he's doing here at Rocky Peak. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you that you purify us. We thank you that you call us. We thank you that you bridge that gap that we couldn't bring. And so now as we gather together as your family, as we sing and declare and say, you own my heart. As I mentioned, Father, let us be the declaration of our souls. Let us be changed by your word. Let us stand with a new confidence and a new authority that we have been purified by the power of Jesus and he is with us, giving us his strength, giving us his power, leading us and changing us into his new kingdom. We commit this time to you, Lord, in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak. You know, as we reflect on that beatitude, there's so much beauty in it, isn't there? But I got to say, what the Lord keeps bringing me back to, what I find to be the most beautiful is that's our identity because of Jesus. That because of the work in our life, I'm no longer defined by sin. I'm not defined by my shortcomings. I'm not defined by what I know or what I don't know. I'm not defined by what I've done to others or what they've done to me. I'm not defined by my past lifestyles. I'm defined by him and him alone. And my encouragement to you, Rocky Peak, as we leave this place, as we go about our weeks, May you live and rest in the truth that because of Jesus, you can call yourself pure in heart. 
May you celebrate that. May that be your focus. May that overflow into your lives as you seek his presence, as you confess of sins, as you go on mission and tell people, man, if Jesus can purify my life, he can purify yours. Remember who you are. And as a friend of mine has put it, remember whose you are. Amen? Hey, if you would like to uh, pray with somebody before you leave this place today, whether you're here in the worship center or you're there on the ridge, over along my right to that wall, there's some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry that are wearing badges to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you. And I hope you take advantage of them. Here in the worship center, I got to ask for a quick apology. I got to make a quick apology. Normally, I would love to hang out in the front and interact with people. But all morning, my throat has been killing me. So I'm going to go hibernate after this. So it's not because I don't like you. I don't want to infect you, is how we go. Hey, next week, you got to be here, because next week, it's going to get spicy, Rocky Peak. The beatitude on the table, blessed are the peacemakers. We are living in a world in which it seems like we are good at anything but bringing peace. And so we're going to dig into the teaching of Jesus and look at two core things. What does it mean to bring the peace of the kingdom? And what does it mean that he has called us not to wait, but to go out and bring that kingdom peace to the world around us? I hope you can join us. We'll see you then. Have a great week. Rocky Peak.